Genesis 25, starting in verse 19, we'll read right there. Now, these are the records of the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Now, Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padam Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. And the Lord answered him, and Rebekah his wife conceived. But the children struggled together within her. And she said, If it is so, why then am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. It's a lot of people. <laughs> and two peoples will be separated from your body. And one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Rebecca has some serious problems here. Three of them that I can count right off the bat, and if you're taking notes, jot these down. Rebecca's background, Rebecca's barrenness, and Rebecca's babies. The three B's of Rebecca. She's got three big problems going on. Rebecca's background because she is an Aramean. You see, Rebecca's pagan. Though Abraham sent his servant Eliezer to go to his own country, to his own people, to find a wife for his son, his own people were still pagans. Remember that Abraham came out of idolatry, out of paganism, out of idol worship. In fact, it is said traditionally that Abraham may well have been himself an idol maker before he was called by God, left Ur of the Chaldees, and finally made his way into the Promised Land. So in sending back to his own family to get a wife for his son, though she would be of the same flesh and blood, she was still a pagan. She still didn't have the experiences that Abraham had had, that Isaac had had. And this was a problem. Secondly, Rebecca's barrenness, and it amazes me that yet again God uses an empty womb to bless all the nations of the earth. A woman who can't have children now has children. How many times do we see that happen in Scripture? It happened with Abraham and Sarah. Sarah was barren. God blessed her. She had a child anyway. Now Rebecca's barren. And eventually we'll see Mary, though she's not barren, is a teenager who God miraculously blesses with the birth of a child. Now what's funny is the third problem would seem to be, if we weren't in the pages of God's Word, a contradiction of the second problem. The second problem is barrenness, and the third problem is babies. And the two shouldn't happen to the same woman, but they do. Rebecca does get pregnant, is able to have babies, but there's a brawl in her belly. There's a fight going on. The two babies are not happy with each other, and they are going at it before they are ever born, which kind of raises an interesting issue. And that's, is the Bible just being poetic, or is there some kind of sense of consciousness in the womb? These babies were fighting, were tussling, were going at it together. And God tells Sarah the reason is because they're two nations. These two brothers are going to go head to head. And already it is so. Now we say in our you know, highly advanced medical world, we say, well, it's not possible. There's not consciousness in the womb. Well, we know there's consciousness in the first year of life. None of us remember it. And we can't prove it. I remember my grandmother saying that she could remember far, far back, way back further than any of her brothers and sisters, and they used to argue about it when they were little kids, as many kids do argue about how long, how far back they can remember. And she said, I remember all the way back to when the Lord said, hold still, Irene, while I put your eyeballs in. You know? That's quite a memory. <laughs> but, but what is it about, you know, we, we assume, we make all kinds of assumptions. 
You know, a child in the first year of life, for those of you who have raised children, you know, there's consciousness. This child is alert, is aware. This child can get angry, can get fussy, can show signs of content and peace and happiness. I don't think anyone would debate the fact that there is consciousness with a child in the first year of life, even though none of us remember it. Is there consciousness in the womb? It's entirely possible it seems to be indicated by what we have going on here. But as we look at these things, Isaac, and we're, we're going into Isaac's life now. What's interesting is Isaac's life is very quickly covered in Scripture, and then you move right on. In fact, at the very beginning of the story of Isaac, we're already talking about his kids, and they pretty much take center stage right off the bat. But Isaac in his life is the heir of Abraham. And I want you to notice something, because as we look at this, we see that Isaac is already experiencing Abraham's legacy. You see, Isaac has all things. Everything that belonged to Abraham was given to Isaac. His material goods, his flocks, his herds, his servants, everything. All of Abraham's riches accumulated across the years as he sojourned was now passed on to Isaac. He had it all. But we see here the most important thing that Abraham left his son. It's the most important thing any parent can leave a child. And that's his legacy. And it is a legacy of faith. Three ways to see this legacy of faith working out. Number one, in light of Rebecca's background, her pagan background, Isaac prays. He prays in faith for his wife. Genesis chapter 24, verse 63, we saw this before, that Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening, and he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, candles were coming. That word meditate is used in conjunction with, it's pray. He was out praying. What was he praying for? I make an assumption, and I don't think it's a far assumption, I don't think it's too far to leap to say he was praying for his wife. He knew she was coming. He knew his father had sent for a bride, and that she would be returning at some point. So now he's out, he's meditating, he's thinking, what man who knows his bride is coming would not be thinking about her? And Isaac is already praying for her. Just like Jesus is praying for his bride. And we covered that before. But don't ever forget that. As long as we're here and he's there, know that Jesus is praying for you. That he is interceding for you on behalf of you before the Father. So in light of Rebecca's background, Isaac prays. In the plight of Rebecca's barrenness, Isaac prays. Again, verse 21 says he prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife. Because she was barren and the Lord answered him. Isaac must have remembered that his own life came from a dead womb. That he himself was born of a womb that was not supposed to bear. That he came from a woman who was barren just like his wife. And Isaac thinks about this and begins to pray. He goes to the Lord and James 5.16 tells us the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Now, if you've heard that verse before, the effective prayer of a righteous man can, can accomplish much, that might intimidate a little bit. But think about, okay, first of all, I'm not a righteous man. And secondly, how do I pray effectively? Well, that word effective is interesting. In the Greek, it's energeo, meaning energetically. It's where we get our word energy. He, the, the effective prayer is the active, the energetic prayer. It's as simple as that. It's the person who is praying. Who is taking the time, who's sending up the words, who is actively, operatively praying. And there aren't a whole lot of us husbands here tonight, but I've I got to ask you guys, how is the inner jetto of your prayer for your families? How actively do we pray for our wives, for our children? It can be a huge, a huge blessing to pray for them. 
So, in light of Rebecca's background, Isaac is in prayer. In the plight of her barrenness, Isaac is in prayer. And finally, number three, in the flight or in the fight of Rebecca's babies, Rebecca's in prayer. Something has happened because now the pagan is praying. She knows where to go. She knows who to go to. In the short amount of time that she's been with Isaac, now Rebecca is going to the father. And I love the way it reads, verse 22. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is so, why am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord. She went to ask of the Lord, to see from the Lord what's going on. Not only does she know that the sovereign God has the answer, but she knows He will offer the answer. And in fact, He does. I said a moment ago while we were praying that... We believe that God answers us. And that we believe that God speaks to His people today. And why would we not? Where is it in our theology that we got some idea down the line that God just said, okay, that's enough of that conversation, connection, communication with you people. You're on your own. Good luck. This is not the heart of the Father. And what I believe has happened is somewhere along the line, man just started saying, no, I'll, I'll deal with it. I'll take care of it. Babies are fighting in the womb. Well, I can't figure that out. I better go to a doctor and find out why. You know, kids are fighting in the other room. I better go to a psychologist and figure that one out. It amazes me how much money people will spend on psychology and they haven't even taken a moment to freely get down on their knees and pray. Talk to the Father. Ask the Father. Inquire of the Lord. God, why is this happening? How often are your prayers filled with whys and seeking an answer? So much of our prayer is filled with, you know, a lot of thank you, some praise, and telling God what we want or what we would like to see happen. How often do we just say, God, why is it this way? Lord, could you explain to me what's happening in my life? Could you express to me? Lord, I'm not sure which direction to choose here. Would you show me? And then sit back and wait for him to answer. That's hard in American culture because we're not patient waiters. You know, we want the answer quickly, we want it now, and we want to just figure it out. And if we don't get a quick answer from God, man, we're off on our own doing our thing. Figuring it out ourselves. Rebecca goes and she inquires of the Lord. Verse 23, And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body, and one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. The two nations are the Israelites and the Edomites. And God says the Edomites will be subservient to the Israelites. God says the one child, the firstborn, who will be Esau, you'll see in a moment, will serve the secondborn, the younger, who is Jacob. And it shouldn't be that way. I mean, the standard of, of biblical history is the firstborn is the firstborn, is the heir. God makes a switch on this one, says, no, this time the heir is going to be Jacob and not Esau. And a lot of people struggle with that. Why does he do it? Is that fair? Is it fair of God to switch things around? Poor Esau. What did he do wrong? He eats some soup. You're going to see that in a minute. He's hungry. He kind of gets passed by. He loses his birthright. He gets passed over the secondborn. And how, how many firstborns do we have in here? Just we have a few of you. How would you guys feel? Okay, Josh, how would you feel if you knew that, oh, sorry, Josh, the entire inheritance of your family goes to Jordan? You're out of luck. It would stay. <laughs> so tonight, Josh is our picture of Esau. 
No. I won't do that to you because you're going to see something about Esau here and it's not pretty. Is it fair that Pharaoh's heart was hardened by God? Is that fair? The Bible tells us that's what happened. In no uncertain terms, Pharaoh's heart, God hardened it so that Pharaoh couldn't make a decision to let his people go. That doesn't seem fair at all. What about Judas? Talk about a setup for an eternal fall. Here's a guy who was one of the twelve. And God knew. Jesus knew. In fact, I'm convinced he chose Judas knowing Judas was going to be the betrayer. Why not hold Judas aside and say, listen, Judas, (laughs) like he did with Peter, Satan really wants you. Don't let him get you. Now, Jesus may have had that conversation with Judas. I don't know. But the reality is that Judas was part of the plan. Pilate was part of the plan. These people. And we begin to, in our free society, think, wait a minute, what about the choice? Is that fair? How can God do this? How can he choose Jacob over Esau, the younger over the older? And how do we explain all this in light of God's mercy? Well, flip in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, because Paul does a beautiful job explaining this. Romans chapter 8, and verse 28. This, by the way, is a discussion that has gone on in Christianity for 2,000 years. This question of God's election, God's predestination of people versus man's free will. Which one is it? Do I have freedom to make my own choices or has God already made those choices for me? And if he's already made those choices for me and then I'm saved, good. And if I'm not saved, well, bummer, but that's just the way it is. Which one is it? Paul explains it clearly here, I believe. Romans 8.28 And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Now listen. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He predestined He also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. There's a process here. God predestined certain people to be conformed to the image of his Son. He called them, he justified them, and he will glorify them. What about those who he didn't predestine? The key, the key is in verse 29. In the first few words here, Paul says, For those whom he foreknew. Those whom he foreknew. Two things to understand about this. Number one, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. He has the right to make whatever decisions he wants to make about our lives because he's the creator. He made us, not the other way around. If he wants to choose the younger over the older, if he wants to harden a heart, whether it makes any sense to us whatsoever is completely beside the point because God is God and we are not. However... Though God is sovereign, God's election is based on foreknowledge. Now stick with me because this is hard thinking. His election is based on foreknowledge. In other words, he knows what we're going to do before we do it. And he predestines us to the very things that we're going to do that he knows we're going to do before we do them, but that we choose to do. Did you get that? It is our choice. He doesn't keep us from our free will. He allows us to make the decision, but he knows what we're going to do before we do it. He already knows. He's God. He's sovereign. He's seen it all. I used the example of the Rose Parade here before. 
It's like sitting on the corner of the rose parade and you see one float come by at a time or you can sit up in the blimp and look down and see the whole thing, the big parade, the big picture all happening at once. That's what God does. He sees it all happening at once. He's not bound by time. He knows exactly what Hannah's going to do tomorrow. He knows what's going to go on for Jim in the classroom two days, three, not two days from now because that would be Saturday and you're not going to be there. That's right. Monday, he knows. Now, has Jim made the decisions that he needs to make? He's made a few of them, but has he acted on the things he's going to act on Monday morning? No. But God knows exactly what he's going to do. Did God force him to do that? No. But he knows he's going to do it. And so because he knows what each of us are going to choose, he then takes that choice and predestines it. Predestines us to be justified. To be called people. To to be glorified. He looks ahead and says... Man, this is great. Mike is going to believe in me. He's going to give me his life. He's going to trust me. And I am going to predestine him for justification and glorification. That's how it works. Well, I'm going to tell you more about the Edomites and Esau in just a moment. But back to Genesis 25, verse 24. And I love this, and don't miss this wording, it's beautiful. When her days, when Rebecca's days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. Poignant wording, her days to be delivered. And any woman who's ever been pregnant, about long about probably the sixth or seventh or eighth month especially, is longing for deliverance. They want to be delivered. And here we see that God does an amazing thing. He delivers Rebecca from her background of paganism. He has her pulled out. He delivers her from her barrenness, and then he delivers her from, well, at least he delivers her brawling babies, the two guys going at it. And when I think about God's response to prayer, I think deliverance is the perfect word for it. For when people go to him and cry out to him in prayer, he responds with deliverance. Rich Mullins wrote a song shortly before his death that has such a powerful... The whole song's amazing. I wish I could just play it for you. Maybe we will sometime. But the chorus, he sings, My deliverer is coming. My deliverer is standing by. He will never break his promise, though the stars may break faith with the sky. My deliverer is coming. My deliverer is standing by. And I am looking forward to my deliverer. But Rebecca here, the days of her, for her to be delivered, came about... And God delivered her in many ways. Jesus does the same thing with us. Jesus, number one, delivers us from our backgrounds. In the same way that Rebecca came out of paganism, so we too are delivered from our backgrounds. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 12 tells us, Remember that you were at one time separate from Christ. Excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. Strangers to the covenants of promise. Having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Paul says, don't forget that. Don't forget that ever. That you at one time were estranged from God. That you at one time were a person of hopelessness. You had no position before Jesus. No place in the heavenly family, but Paul says, you were formerly far off, but not anymore. You've been brought near. You've been pulled out of the paganism of your history and into the family. You are now the bride of Christ. Jesus delivers us from our backgrounds. Jesus delivers us from our barrenness. 
Some of you have heard this before, but Blaise Pascal was very famous for saying that inside of every person is a God-shaped vacuum. A hole that only God can fill. An emptiness, a barrenness. And without God to fill that barrenness, we remain barren. But when we look to Him, when we cry out to Him for deliverance, He fills the hole. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. A few verses here. Listen really closely to this. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that He would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth And to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, listen to this, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. That's cool. To be filled to overflowing. Not only does he fill the hole, but he expands beyond the hole and fills up every inch of you. That's glory. That's what he's promised. When he glorifies our bodies, we're going to be completely overcome. Completely filled up with the fullness of God. Jesus delivers us from our barrenness. And finally, Jesus delivers us from the brawling babies. The brawling babies. What do you mean? Well, just like Rebecca, we all have two brawling babies inside of us. And one is a baby of the flesh. And the other is the baby of the spirit. Hannah and I were driving this morning to school. And as we were driving, KGMI News was on, and we, we oftentimes will pop it on just to kind of see what the weather's like and hear what's going on there. And they were talking on KGMI, and I love this when you're with your son and your daughter or your daughter driving along, and the news shares something that you really didn't want them to hear. And that happens quite a bit these days. But on KGMI, they started talking about the, the cell phone uh, problem with the cell phone cameras, and, and that people were taking cell phone cameras and using them to take pictures in locker rooms and in gyms and, you know, of, of other people unsuspectingly, and then putting them on the internet and this has been going on and they were they're talking about how there's some excitement out there now because they're going to make that illegal as <laughs> if it isn't completely immoral anyway and we're talking about this and Hannah said why do people do that why does this go on dad and all I could say is none is righteous no not one there is sin in the world that's the deal we are not a righteous people. We are only righteous when Jesus delivers us from the sin of the flesh. Galatians 5.17 says, The flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are in opposition to each other, brawling, fighting, contentious, so that you may not do the things that you please. And I've said this before, but if you wonder why there's a spiritual struggle going on, if you wonder why day to day you can have a really good day spiritually with the Lord one day, and the next day you can be totally off, It's because the spirit and the flesh are fighting it out. They are duking it out inside of each of us, and they're trying to see who's going to win. And the winner, as I told my daughter this morning, is the one you feed. It's the baby that you give nourishment to. That will grow up and be the strong one and will win the battle, be it the spirit or the flesh. Interesting that just like Ishmael and Isaac, now we have Jacob and Esau, a picture, Jacob of the spirit and Esau of the flesh. And that becomes very clear here. Look at verse 25. Now the first came forth red, all over like a hairy garment, and they named him Esau. Esau means hairy. His name was Harry. So Harry was born. 
Verse 26, afterward, his brother came forth with his hand holding on to Harry's heel. So his name was called Jacob, and Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. Now this is interesting. Esau is the quintessential redneck. He's red, he's hairy, and that's his name. They call him Harry. Now Jacob comes out, and he's a little bit different. You're going to see Esau is a hunter, he's an outdoorsman. He's the guy who would have three or four cars parked in his lawn, okay, and proud of it. He's the guy who, who has the shotgun mounted on the back of his truck right behind him as he's driving down the road. Yeah, the outdoorsman, the hunter, Harry. And then you've got Jacob, whose desire for first place caused him to grab a hold of Esau's heel on the way out. These kids were fighting for first place. Esau's going out and Jacob's going, no way! And he grabs on and as they come out, Jacob's hand is on Esau's heel. And so Jacob, his name means heel catcher. That's it. Harry and heel catcher. That's their names. That's the original meaning of, of Jacob. Jacob, heel catcher. Now it's transitioned and the name means supplanter. One who supplants another. One who gains control or who, who gains precedence over someone else. One who, in our terms, may be better understood, does an end run and gets out and breaks away. You see, Jacob had a desire for first place. So you've got the two brothers, Harry and Heel Catcher. Do these people in the Bible know how to name their kids or what? <laughs> Verse 27, when the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a peaceful man, living in tents. Look at the contrast of these boys. Esau's out there roughing it up. Jacob's home knitting. <laughs> He enjoys the peaceful life. Maybe he writes some poetry. I don't know. But he's a quiet man. But watch this. And note there's a very important word here. Verse 28 tells us, Now Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Let me read it again. Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. The word to note is because... Because Esau has earned his father's love. Isaac loved Esau because of what he had done. Because he was a gamesman, a sportsman. Because he was out there hunting. Because this was the way that he had earned this. Isaac liked that. Yeah, my rough and tumble boy. Jacob was loved by Rebekah because... Because... Not for any reason whatsoever. She just loved him. Jacob hasn't earned a single thing. He's just loved. Now it's a shame that in this family we see favoritism playing out. Father loves one, wife loves the husband, or yeah, wife, mother loves the other one. And so that's going to help, you know, stir up the pot a bit anyway. But this is so important to understand because we do see a picture of the flesh and the spirit emerging here. It is always of the flesh. To feel like we are loved because of what we do. Like Isaac, or, or not Isaac, like Esau, the flesh always seeks for reasons to be loved. That's the way of the flesh. God's going to love me because I go out on the hunt. Because I'm bringing in the big game. That's why God loves me. Because I'm drenched in the sweat of my labor for Him. That's why God loves me. Because I'm here on the, on the Wednesday night when it's beautiful and sunny. 
Because I'm taking the time out to be in Bible study. That's why God loves me. He loves me because, man, I, I, I spend time memorizing Scripture. I do. He loves me because I volunteer down at the local Y. I help out at the Salvation Army. No, I, I'm working really hard in my church. That's why God loves me. Folks, we're dead wrong. That's the way the flesh thinks. The flesh thinks, if I do this, then I get love. The Spirit recognizes something completely different. And see if your spirit doesn't confirm this truth. God does not love you because of who you are or because of what you've done. He loves you because He is love. And you can't earn it. You get it because that's who He is. Because that's what God is about. He is love. 1 John 4.17 tells us God is love. But it remains a difficult concept to get from our heads down to our hearts. It is a struggle for all of us as believers, day in and day out. It doesn't matter how long you've been a believer. We still sink into the flesh and think, I've got to do things for God to love me. If I go to Bible study tonight, God will love me a little more. If I join the worship team, God will be a little more pleased. If I sacrifice my time, my energy, my effort, then God will really love me. And the truth is, if you're in the Word... If you're in prayer, if you're in fellowship, if you're functioning as a living sacrifice, the truth is, you will come to love him more, but it will not make him love you more. Because he can't love you anymore. He loves you with an everlasting love. He loves you with an unconditional love, and nothing you or I do can change that. But we can change in the way that we love him So understand, when you do anything that you do for the Lord, you do it because you're growing up in your love for Him and not the other way around. And we want to love Him more, don't we? Don't you want to come into a knowledge of this love that is so vast and so deep and so unconditional? Now, interesting, verse 27 tells us Jacob was a peaceful man. That word peaceful is literally complete. Jacob was the complete man. Not because of his great conquest or his success, Not because of proofs of his manhood. He was peaceful. He was complete because he was unconditionally loved. And that's all it took. And guys, especially front row guys, you're right in an age right now. (laughs) I love that they're all right here. This is very cool to me. You guys are in an age right now where what the world is telling you is the way to be cool, the way to be seen, the way to be loved is to do it all. You know, to be the athlete. You know, to have some kind of talent you put out there and people can look at you and go, oh wow, I saw Josh out there, man, when he made that basket, it was like, that guy's awesome, whoa. And so we walk around, you know, you're, you're raised in a culture that's telling you that, work hard, but that's the flesh talking. And I want you guys to understand right now that the Spirit loves you, not because of anything that you're ever going to do in your life. And that makes a complete man. Not all this other stuff that we chase and pursue that we think leads to manliness. No, the complete man, the perfect man, as the word describes Jacob, the man who is, you know, I look at Jacob and I can make a lot of fun of Jacob. I'll be careful not to. But here's the peaceful, quiet little wimp, you know, who's in the tent while Esau's out getting the dinner. What are you doing, Jacob? Vacuuming? I mean, come on. Get outside and mow the lawn or something. But that's the flesh talking. And the flesh says, man, a man has got to do. And Jacob's not that kind of a guy. But he is a complete man. Why is he a complete man? Because Jacob, Jacob, the scriptures say, Jacob have I loved. 
Jacob have I loved. Flip back to Romans again. Romans chapter 9. I'm going to show you something else here. Romans chapter 9 and verse 10. Harry was loved because of what he did. <laughs> Heel catcher was loved just because, because that's the way of the Spirit. Look in Romans chapter 9 verse 10 and understand these words. Again, Paul helps us out in our understanding. He says, There was Rebecca, and when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, it says, For though the twins were not yet born, and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, and not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Listen again, because this is what we've just been discussing. So that God's purpose, according to His choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Again, that doesn't seem fair. Why does God love Jacob and hate Esau? Now understand here, Jacob and Esau are pictures. God loves the things that Jacob was interested in. God hates the things of Esau, which are the things of the flesh. Read on verse 14. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. Now skip down to verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? I love this. The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Will it? How often is a clay pot, when all finished and pulled out of the kiln, going to look up at its maker and go, okay, I'm not real, uncom I'm not real comfortable with this position. I don't like the handle the way you put on me. And I prefer a wider opening and a nicer spout. And I'm very frustrated with you, O potter. No, it's not what happens. The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this? Will it? Verse 21. Or does not the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And if he did so, to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. As he says also in Hosea, and listen to this, I will call those who were not my people, my people. And her who is not beloved, beloved. And it shall be in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people there. They shall be called sons of the living God. You see, folks, Paul is saying if you want to question God's fairness and mercy, first look at yourself and ask this question. Does God love me? Does God love me? Now, you may be tempted in your flesh to say, Well, I don't know if he loves me today. I've had a bad day. I haven't been real lovable. But the reality is, if you ask the question, does God love me, the answer is always yes. So if that's the case, when we see Jacob have I loved, it's because through Jacob, God expresses his love, reveals his love to the whole of the world. 
Why does he love Jacob? Because through Jacob and through Jacob's seed, God will save the world. God will express his love to everybody. Not just to Jacob, but to all people. Through the seed who is Jesus. Now back to Genesis 25, verse 29. When Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in from the field and he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, Please, let me have a swallow of that red stuff there, for I am famished. Therefore his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, First, sell me your birthright. And Esau said, Behold, I'm about to die. So what use then is the birthright to me? And Jacob said, First swear to me. And so he swore to him and he sold his birthright to Jacob for some stew. And then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. And already we see in Esau's life that God had foreknowledge of the type of person he was. That when God said to Rebekah, the twins in your womb, the younger is going to be over the older. The older will serve the younger. God had foreknowledge of who the older would be. Esau. Of how he would be. Of the fact that he would despise his birthright so much so that he would sell it off so he could have some red stew. And so Esau's name was changed. He was nicknamed Edom, which means red. Not because he had red hairy body, I mean that, yeah, he did, but the nickname Edom literally comes from the red stew that he sold his birthright for, and it's hung on through all generations. As a matter of fact, a people came from the line of Esau, and a, uh, a contentious people, who would be an ongoing exasperation for the people of Jacob. By the way, who are the people of Jacob? Israel. Jacob's name, as you're going to see, will be changed to Israel. So anytime you hear the, the statement, the people of Israel or the Israelites, they're the children of Jacob. They come directly. He's the father of the children of Israel because he is Israel. And so you have this group that comes from Esau called the Edomites. And then you have the other group that comes from Jacob called the Israelites. And there is a constant war and battle between them throughout all of history. Now the Edomites... Again and again and again in the Old Testament, their name's going to come up, and it's always in conjunction with being a problem for Israel. They historically set themselves against the spiritual things of God. They are, like their father Esau, people of the flesh, people of the red meat, people of the stew. That's where they live, that's where they reside, that's what's important to them. They are stew people. Now you've got the Israelites, who are not perfect people, but people of God, the people of the Spirit. It's interesting, in Numbers 20, Edom, the people of Edom, refuse with the sword Moses and the Israelites the right of passage back to the Promised Land. They're coming back out of Egypt. They've been there in bondage for 400 years. And as they make their way toward the Promised Land, they send emissaries with a letter to the king of Edom. And they say, hey, king, O oh, king of Edom, our, our brother, they call him brother because they're related all the way back to Jacob and Esau. Hey, brother, you know what's happened to us, that we've been in bondage for 400 years. We're coming back now to the promised land. Can we just cross through Edom? Can we just pass through your territory? And in the letter, and you can read this in Numbers 20, they even write, We won't drink of your wells. We won't walk on any of your vineyards or trample any of your fields. We will stay on the king's highway, all three million of us. We will stay on the king's highway and we'll pass through. And that's all we're asking. Can we please pass through your land? And the Edomites respond, we will keep you from passing through with the sword. Don't even think about it. 
Don't even think about coming through this land that belongs to us now, Israelites. Stealing our birthright for stew. I mean, they're still bitter about it. They set themselves against the people of God, the Israelites, all the way down the line, even to the last Edomite who is recorded in the Bible, a man named Herod. Herod was an Edomite. And Herod is the one, if you recall in Matthew chapter 2, slaughtered Israel's firstborn sons to prevent the coming of God's Messiah. These people were not of God. The Edomites also, by the way, hold a horrific place in the coming judgment of Jesus Christ in the day of the Lord. For Isaiah chapter 34 tells us that Jesus, and there is indication of this, it may well be that when he comes back, the first place he touches down is not going to be the Mount of Olives. But it will be a place called Basra, not Basra, Iraq, but another Basra. And when he touches down, well, let me read this to you, Isaiah 34, verse 5. Listen to what happens. God is speaking and says, My sword is satiated in heaven. Behold, it shall descend for judgment upon Edom, and upon the people whom I have devoted to destruction. The sword of the Lord is filled with blood. It is sated with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, and with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra, and a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Will oxen, wild oxen will also fall with them, and young bulls with strong ones, thus their land will be soaked with blood, and their dust become greasy with fat. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. God is fiercely protective of his people Israel. In other places in Scripture, we're told very simply, those who bless Israel will be blessed, and those who curse them will be cursed. And those who pray for the peace of Jerusalem, God will protect those who go against Jerusalem and against the Israelites' lookout because his sword is going to be satiated with their blood. So Esau is this fleshly, carnal father of the Edomites, Red, as they call him, his nickname, and he despises his birthright. He actually could care less. He could give a rip. I don't care about all this stuff. Now understand, Jacob and Esau are older boys at this time. They have most likely heard of the stories from Isaac about Abraham, about God's call, about these promises of being a great nation, but Esau doesn't care. Just give me my red soup and let me go back out and hunt, because I really don't care about that stuff. i got to go work on the car in the yard, okay? This is Esau, and his whole life story would be one of the flesh. In fact, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15, listen to this one. The Hebrew writer says, See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, and that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it may be defiled. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau. That word godless is otherwise translated profane. That nobody be profane like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. That word godless, profane, is babelos, and literally it means outside of the temple. But Esau is called a profane man, one who is outside of the temple, one who could care less about temple things, about spiritual things. However, Jacob, his brother, is the spiritual one. Oh, Jacob's a schemer. He's deceitful. He is far from being a perfect man. But there is something about Jacob that the father loves. Beyond the fact that the father loves anyway, Jacob is concerned with spiritual things. Why is it that when you look at King David... He could be called a man after God's own heart even after he commits adultery and murder. 
because his heart was still about spiritual things. His heart was still focused on what God wanted, except for that mess up, that bad sin. Aside from that time, David still wanted to be about the things of God. Well, Esau has no desire for the spiritual, but Jacob, for all his faults, hungered and thirsted after the role of first in the family. He wanted to be the one through whom the seed would be counted. And so, that's exactly what happened. Now, we'll hear more of this family feud in future stories. But first... We come to the last story of Isaac, chapter 26 and verse 1. And you're saying, how are we going to do an entire chapter? This moves much faster, so hang with me. Verse 1, <laughs> there was a famine in the land, besides the previous famine that had occurred in the days of Abraham. So Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. Now, I want you to think back, Abimelech. Do you remember Abimelech? Do you remember that Abraham had... Uh, an association so-called with Abimelech and Abraham went to Gerar and went to the king of the Philistines and they asked him hey hey, that, that, that wife of yours that 90 year old wife of yours is, she's something to look at <laughs> actually he didn't say wife he didn't know he said who is this 90 year old beauty <laughs> and Abraham said oh you mean my sister Sarah <laughs> yeah you can take her <laughs> right ahead just don't hurt me and so off she goes, Sarah goes to the harem. We're right back to the same thing. You see, Abraham's legacy of faith with, with Isaac is also a legacy of doubt. Because the same thing happens, a famine comes up and, and Isaac starts to look around. He's in the land of promise. He knows he'll be taken care of there, at least he's been told that. But that's not quite good enough because famine has hit the land and we've got to go somewhere to survive. We can't stay here, even though God said you can. We can't, so we go to Gerar. Very close, in fact, it's a border town of the land of Egypt. And look at what God says. Verse 2. The Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. You see, your father went down to Egypt and Hagar came out of that situation and Ishmael, your brother, and you remember that whole story. Don't go down to Egypt. Stay in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land and I will be with you and bless you for to you and to your descendants I will give all these lands. And I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven. And I will give your descendants all these lands. And by your descendants all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed me and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. And my goodness, I'm a little disappointed in the translation. Because the word descendants throughout here is not descendants. It's seed. And it's not seed plural, it's seed singular. Listen again. I will be with you and bless you, and to you and your seed singular, I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. I will multiply your seed singular as the stars of the heavens. I will give your seed all these lands, and by your seed, by your seed, that single seed, who's the seed? Jesus is. By this seed... All the nations of the earth shall be blessed. It's not by the generic descendants, the seeds, plural, of Israel that the world is blessed. It's by the seed, Jesus. Well, God tells this. And <clears throat> Bible students, let me ask this question. What is Egypt a picture of in Scripture? Anyone remember? What is Egypt a picture of? The world. The world. Anytime someone goes down to Egypt, they're going down to the world. So Egypt is a picture of the world. And Isaac is right on the border. Gerar is a border town of Egypt. He's right there. He is headed that direction. 
And God says, whoa, Isaac, don't do it. Don't go down to Egypt. I don't want you down there. You go where I tell you to go. You stay in the land and I will bless you. Verse 6, so Isaac lived in Gerar. Now, again, Gerar is as close as you can get to Egypt without going into Egypt. So Isaac is at least not doing what Abraham did. He's at least not going down to Egypt. He's staying out of Egypt, but he's right on the border. He is walking the the line. He's riding the fence. And he dwells on the edge of the land. As close to the world as I can possibly get. And how often do we do the exact same thing? We walk that line. Oh God, I love you. I want to serve you. I I want to be with you. But, But, you know, that... That entertainment looks good. I know it's in Egypt, but they got good dancers there. <laughs> the business is healthy down in Egypt. So I'm going to keep a foot in Gerar, and I'm going to stay on this side, but I'm just going to kind of, you know, just this week, I'm going to work one business deal, and I'll be back. And we ride the fence just like Isaac. You know, you can call border towns like this by another name. It's the town of I can handle it. <laughs> I got it covered, Lord. I'm fine. I'm good. Church on Sunday, Wednesday. I'm in Bible study. I got a small group I'm involved with. And I got to do some business here. But I got both handled. I can handle it. You ever visit the border towns of Egypt? You ever spend time there? I I have. We do it in our family decisions, in our business, in our entertainment. There are so many things. And, And you know what? You may think you can handle it. And I'll even give you this much. You might be right. You might be able to handle it. You might be able to be in the world, but not be of the world. But guess what? There's a price you're going to pay. Watch this. Verse 7. When the men of the place asked about his wife, he said, She's my sister. What goes around comes around. (laughs) She's my sister, for he was afraid to say my wife, thinking the men of the place might kill me on account of Rebecca, for she is beautiful. Abe said the exact same thing to the exact same people in the exact same location. It just replays itself again. Why does Isaac do this? Legacy. Because though he had the legacy of faith, he also had the legacy of doubt. He grew up under Abraham's tutelage. Abraham is his father. Isaac knew the stories and Isaac falls in line. And though we may be able to live on the borderland, dads especially, if you choose to live on the borderland, you might be able to handle it. The question is, can your sons, can your daughters, how will they handle life on the borderland? Lot, you remember Lot? who saw the green fields in Sodom and Gomorrah and thought, I can handle this, and goes down to the land. How did that affect his family? Or maybe Lot could handle it, but not his girls, not his family. Gang, do you realize that we're all leaders? Every one of us? Every one of us are leaders. Whether you want to be a lot or or not, you are a leader. And you're either a good leader or you're a bad leader. But you're leading. There is somebody in your life who's watching you. Somebody who is following your lead. Somebody who's looking at what you're doing and saying, I think I'll do that too. And especially when we get into the world of parenting, our kids are going to follow. They may not think so. They may think that they're doing their own thing, but it is absolutely amazing how history repeats itself in families, just like with Abraham and Isaac right here. And i got to ask you parents, do you want your kids in compromising situations? If you're making a decision not for yourself, but for your children, would you say, hey, live on the border town. 
go get that job that has you a foot in the world and, and, a, and a foot out. That's okay. That's great. No, his parents would say, hey, you know what? you got to be careful. Maybe you don't want to live so close to the border of the world. And yet, when we live there ourselves, you know, the actions speak louder than the words. And eventually, by the way, you probably won't be able to handle it yourself. Proverbs 29, verse 6 says, By transgression, an evil man is ensnared. But the righteous sings and rejoices. That word ensnared is a beautiful, difficult picture. You're ensnared. It's not that you choose sin because, oh, it just looks beautiful and you go diving in. No, you get caught. You get stuck. It didn't look so bad at first, but you get ensnared. Verse 8. It came about when he had been there a long time that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out through a window and saw, and behold, Isaac was caressing his wife, Rebekah. What's he doing with his sister? What's going on here? And then Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, certainly she is your wife. That word caressing, you know it's great. I just love the King James Version. In the King James it says he was sporting with her. <laughs> and we're not talking about tennis. Okay? <laughs> you are sporting with your wife. I gotta use that this week. <laughs> hey honey, you wanna sport? Anyway, okay. <laughs> He's caressing his wife, and Abimelech said, I knew it. Behold, certainly she's your wife. How then did you say she's my sister? And Isaac said to him, because I said I might die on account of her. Guys, isn't that what we're supposed to do for our wives? Isn't that what the Bible says? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Abraham didn't learn that lesson. Isaac didn't learn it from his dad. They both were afraid that they were going to die if they proclaimed the woman as their wife. They were more willing to let the woman be taken than to protect her with their lives. Amazing. Verse 10, Abimelech said, What is this that you have done to us? One of your people might, one of our people might easily have lain with your wife, sported, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech charged all the people saying, He who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. And why does Abimelech say that? Because he knows the story. Now this is not the same Abimelech that was with Abraham. This is his son. I believe I told you before that Abimelech is a title like Pharaoh. So now you've got Abimelech one, and now you've got Abimelech Jr. Abby Jr. And he comes along and says, Hey, I saw what happened with your dad and my dad and it wasn't pretty. I almost didn't get born on account of you. So knock it off. Why are you lying to us? And Isaac, man, he's afraid for his wife. Isaac's got a legacy. A legacy of doubt. A legacy that Abraham leaves him. And Abimelech Jr. has a legacy too. He remembers his father's story. Verse 12. Now Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold and the Lord blessed him. He blessed Isaac? Who just lied about his wife? Yeah. Yeah, because the Lord doesn't love us because of what we do. <laughs> he just loves us, and he has a plan to save us. And so he blesses Isaac a hundredfold, and the man became rich, and continued to grow wealthy, or richer until he became very wealthy, for he had possessions of flocks and herds and a great household, so that all the Philistines envied him. One thing I can tell you about why I believe God blessed Isaac and when Isaac did receive a hundredfold, it was after Isaac confessed. 
It was after Isaac owned up. When his sin was exposed. When his sin was confessed. Now here's a, a thought. That when we bury our sin. It just produces hard soil. But when we confess our sin. God can then work a harvest. God can then work a hundredfold. He can do amazing things. He can make us fruitful. So Isaac is blessed. And the Philistines are envious. What do the Philistines do? Verse 15. Now all the wells which his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father, the Philistines stopped up by filling them up with earth. The Philistines filled the wells. And then Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are too powerful for us. And Isaac departed from there and camped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. Reading on verse 18, Then Isaac dug again the wells of water which had been dug in the days of his father Abraham, for the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the same names which his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of flowing water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with the herdsmen of Isaac, saying, The water is ours! So he named the well Essek, because they contended with him. And then they dug another well, and they quarreled over it too, so he named it Sitna. He moved away from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it, so he named it Rehoboth. For he said, At last the Lord has made room for us, and we will be fruitful in the land. Isaac is still living in border town right now. He's still right there on the verge of Egypt, and there are bound to be problems when you do that. And here are two problems. One of them we just talked about, that's assimilation. When you live so close to the world, so close to Egypt, you begin to walk like an Egyptian. You begin to live and act and move. Sorry, I had to reach back to the 80s there. A little bangles music for you. You begin to do the things of the people of Egypt. You begin to act like the world. You become assimilated. And the danger in our Christian lives is the more we focus on the world and the less we focus on the Spirit and on Jesus, the more we become like the world until we don't even know it anymore. As Paul says, our consciences become seared to where we can't even see the right and wrong of things. Assimilation. But there's another thing that happens when you live right on the border of the world. And that's persecution. And you can bank on it. Especially if you're living on the border of the world. If, as Paul said, you're living in the world but not of the world, but you are of the Spirit, you will be persecuted for it. And Isaac is no exception. Folks, you will begin to feel the weight of the unbelieving world, which is why we so desperately need each other. Why we so desperately need fellowship. Why we need these times when we're in the, world, in the Word and in each other's lives. John 15, verse 18, Jesus said, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. And if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, you sojourners, throw the word in. But I chose you out of the world because of this the world hates you. The blessings of God on Isaac caused the people of, of the Philistine land to throw dirt at him. To dig up dirt on him. To fill up the wells. And to try to chase him out. And folks, the blessings of God in your life will cause people to dig up dirt on you too. To throw mud at you. To try to make life hard for you. Which is why the way of confession is so important. Now don't miss this. There's a reason why God tells us to confess our sins. Not only does it get it off our chest and free us up from it. But it also gives people no dirt to dig up. 
whoa, whoa, you did this thing five years ago. I know. Everybody knows about that one. It's out there. It's shared. Is that the best you got? (laughs) If we're confessing it, if we're honest about it, it cannot be used against us. It cannot be dug up. And so Isaac moves from one well to another and he seems to keep having trouble. Now, quickly, the names of these wells are interesting. It tells us, first of all, that back in verse um, let's see, 19, Isaac's servant dug in the valley and found there a well of flowing water. The, the word flowing is actually living. They found a well of living water. What does that remind you of? Living water, Jesus referred to that as the Holy Spirit. Jesus said in John chapter 7, verse 38, He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit with those whom those who believed in him were to receive. The living water of the Holy Spirit. But where did they find this well of living water? On the mountaintop? At the, re- at the devotional time? During worship? When everything was beautiful and glorious and wonderful? No, they found the living water in the valley. Perceived by enemies, bothered by the Philistines, that's where they found the living water. And that's where we find the living water today. That's why the Holy Spirit is most active in our lives, though we may not realize it. When we're down in the valley, when when we're not having these emotional highs that can come so easily and so wonderfully when we're sequestered away with other believers, when we're down in the valley, drudging, working, getting through day to day, the living water's there. The Holy Spirit is found there. And He seeks to overflow your life in the valleys. When life is hard and contentious, that's where the people, people, and the peaceful people who live by the Spirit can dwell. So the well there is called Essek. The word Essek means contention. They name everything based on what's happening, and they say, well, we're fighting over this well, let's call it contention. It's the well of contention. So Isaac moves on from there, and in the face, by the way, of a contentious world, the Spirit still is living water. But he moves on from Essek to the next well, which is called Sitna, which means enmity. Enmity is also a word for hostility or hatred. And there is an everlasting hatred. There is an enmity that goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15. Do you remember Genesis 3.15? Where God says, I will put enmity between you, he's speaking to the serpent, Satan, and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. The enmity between the flesh and the spirit, between that which is demonic and of Satan and that which is of God and is holy. There is enmity there. And it will always be there until Jesus comes back and removes it completely. And so here the well is called Sitna, enmity. Finally, Isaac moves away from there, away from the border town. He gets out and things begin to ease up and he goes and names the well Rehoboth, which basically means roominess. We've got some space to spread out now. We're not being persecuted. We're not being you know, pursued by the Philistines. Life's getting a little better. But Isaac ends up now at one last well. And it's here that he will quietly live out his days. Verse 23. Then he went up from there to Beersheba. And the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, and here's that phrase we need to think about, know this, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear for I am with you. And the Philistines may be pursuing. They may be filling up your wealth. They may be throwing mud at you. But God says, don't be afraid. I'm with you. 
I will bless you and multiply your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. So Isaac builds an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. Notice the order that this happens. He builds an altar first. Calls upon the name of the Lord. Worship and prayer first. And then he builds his home. Then he pitches his tent. And then he digs a well. Verse 26. Oh, by the way. By the way. The well Beersheba. Do you remember what it means? The name is the well of sevens. Because originally, when Abraham dug the same well in the same place, the well of sevens, he sacrificed seven lambs in making a covenant with the original Abimelech. The well of sevens. But seven is also that picture of perfection, that picture of completeness. And here comes Isaac back into the land, back to Beersheba, back to where his father dwelt. Isaac will live out his days quietly there by the well of sevens in a complete place. Also, the number seven speaks of covenant, the completeness of God's plan. And Isaac, though his father gave him a legacy of faith and then a legacy of doubt, Finally, he comes to the real legacy, which is the covenantial legacy of the Lord. Now, as we finish up Isaac's story tonight, I want you to see one last thing. Verse 26. Then Abimelech came to him from Gerar with his advisor Ahuzah and Phicol, the commander of his army. Now, you may say, well, Phicol, that was the same commander of the army before. Yeah, because Phicol is, again, a name. It's a title. Like, you know, chief or general. So he comes with the general, the fico of his army, and Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me since you hate me and have sent me away from you? And they said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, Let there now be an oath between us, even between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will not do us any harm, just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good. All right. And have sent you away in peace. Now, did the Philistines do those things? Oh, we didn't touch you. Granted, we got some dirt in your well. Sorry about that. Then we sent you away. We did nothing but good. Yeah, you drove them from well to well to well. We sent you away in peace. Not exactly. But Abimelech goes on and says, You are now the blessed of the Lord. He's noticed something in Isaac's life. And Isaac didn't have to say a word for Abimelech to see it. It says, Then he made them a feast, and they ate and drank, and in the morning they arose early and exchanged oaths. And then Isaac sent them away, and they departed from him in peace. Now it came about on the same day that Isaac's servants came in and told him about the well which they had dug, and said to him, We found water. And so he called it Sheba, which means seventh. And therefore the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. When I read about Isaac... I'm struck by something about his character. That's it, by the way. The next thing you're going to hear about Isaac, he's going to bless his sons, and then after that he dies. And that's the whole story of Isaac. We spend all these chapters with Abraham, 12, 13, 14 chapters, looking at his life and getting engrossed in the life of Abraham. Isaac comes along and that's about it. He's there, you know, does his thing, and he's gone. But I'm struck with the character of Isaac. As you read through this, and I encourage you, to read it again and just look at Isaac. What does he do? How does he handle life? What's his character like? He's not a bold man. He's not brash. He's not arrogant. He's not overly confident. He's a quiet man. He just kind of goes about his life. As a matter of fact, what the world calls wimpy, Jesus calls meek. 
And Isaac is the poster child of meekness in the Old Testament. Ishmael mocks him when he was a toddler, and he can't defend himself. Abraham lays him at age 33 on the altar to sacrifice him, and he doesn't even resist. Abraham sends for a bride, and Isaac just accepts his father's will, doesn't ask to be part of the discussion. Abimelech comes to him in Gerar and rebukes him, and Isaac kind of says, yeah, you're right. And he confesses his sin. And for every single well his servants dug that the Philistines filled with dirt, Isaac responded with meekness. He didn't fight back. He didn't say, that's it, I'm going to fill their, their wells. We're going to get them for this. Get some toilet paper. We'll get their houses late at night too. This will be great. He doesn't do that. He just moves from well to well to well. They fill up well. He goes, okay, well, we'll go this way. And he fills, all the way through his life, he is this picture of meekness. He doesn't fight. He just follows. And Jesus said in Matthew 5, 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That's not just poetic. Again, so much of what we read in Scripture, we just kind of, you know, we, we make these leaps. Oh, that's nice. The meek will inherit the earth. Well, that's nice. They need to inherit something. You know, I hope they inherit the earth because they, you know, they just don't get a whole lot in life. They're so meek. They inherit the earth. This is a promise. This is a guarantee, folks. I believe that this is prophetic. Let me ask you. At the end of all the contention, all the fighting, who ends up with the inheritance? Isaac does. Who ends up with the honor, even from the Philistines? Isaac does. Amazing. They come to him after all this fighting and finally say, um, Okay, we've been watching and we hope you're not too mad at us because we see that the Lord is with you. And so we just we want peace with you. Isaac didn't have to fight for it. He didn't have to write out treaties for it. He didn't have to bargain. He didn't have to get political. He just followed the Lord in absolute meekness. And so Abimelech sees that the Lord is with him. There is something of this attitude of meekness for the meekest person in the New Testament is Jesus. Listen to this parallel. He's the God who would be born a helpless baby. Just like Isaac was helpless when Ishmael was picking on him. He's the son who would defer completely to the father's will. As Isaac deferred to his father's will and the choice of his bride. To his father's will and the sacrifice on the altar. Jesus would defer in the same way to his father's will of his own sacrifice. Jesus is the Lord who rather than forcibly impose his kingdom on you or me, he invites us instead. He says, hey, how would you like to be my bride? Would you just come and be my Rebecca? Be my bride. He invites us to choose him as our groom so that when he calls, we might be caught up safely tucked away with him on a heavenly honeymoon. Oh, Rick, you're talking about the rapture again. Yes, I am. Because I can't wait. Because I'm looking forward to it. And I want to end with a single verse of prophecy tonight. And listen closely to this. It's from Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 3. This is a prophecy that is not for Israel, by the way. And it's one of these wonderful verses that I, that I come across every now and then that I think are verses tucked away about us being tucked away. Rapture verses. Verses about what can happen for those who follow God. This verse again is not about Israel. It is about people and the nations. Listen to it. Zephaniah chapter 2 verse 3. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth, or you meek of the earth, who have carried out his ordinances. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. And listen, perhaps you will be hidden. In the, in the day of the Lord's anger. 
Maybe you'll be hidden. Maybe you'll be tucked away. Seek humility. What does it take to give your life to Jesus? Humility. It takes a giving over of my will. It takes me saying, I can't Esau my way into heaven. I cannot work my way. I can't be strong enough or good enough. I have to recognize I'm a man in need. That's humiliating. That causes humility. And the prophet says, seek that. Because in humility, if you find the Lord, if you give yourself to the Lord, perhaps you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for the example we see in Isaac's life. May we learn from it, Lord. May we be people who are meek like Isaac, or people who are gentle and complete like Jacob, but not people of the flesh like Ishmael or Esau. Father, bless us with these words tonight. Help us to stay in your scriptures and draw us close to you. Thank you so much for loving us first, that we may learn to love as you do. In Jesus' name, amen.